Hey, pals, thanks for listening to The Big Listen. You know what else you should put your ears on? NPR's Hidden Brain. It's hosted by Shankar Vedantam, and it uses science and storytelling to help you make sense of the world around you. Wondering why it's so hard to change your best friend's political views? Feeling like you're in a bit of a rut and need to get unstuck? Curious as to why you struggle with empathy? Hidden Brain can help answer all of those questions and plenty of others. Find it now on the NPR One app or at npr.org slash podcasts. Before we start, how's about you go review us in iTunes? Seriously, just go to iTunes and tell us what you think. It really helps other very attractive listeners such as yourself find the show. In fact, here's a recent five-star review from listener Chef KWIA. Love the podcast, 14 emoji thumbs ups. I don't usually write reviews, but she said please and thank you, so here I am. Well, thanks, Chef KWIA. See, manners do matter. So leave us a review, please and thank you. Now, let's start the show. It's about 3 o'clock on a recent Thursday afternoon, and about a dozen seniors are making their way into the bistro at the Sunrise Assisted Living Community. First order of business, wine. And cheese, but mostly wine. Oh, yes. Wine is <laughs> important, very important here. That's Alyssa Caraselli. She's the activity and volunteer coordinator here. I'm like the cruise director of Sunrise on Connecticut Avenue. It's like how I like to I mean, it explain like, it to people. It sounds like you probably have the best job here. It's a fun job. It can be a lot of fun. The residents of Sunrise in Washington, D.C. nibble at their cheese and sip on their wine. The community's two dogs, Bugsy and Clarice, hang out underneath the residents' feet, hoping for dropped crumbs, which of course there are a few. All right, so we have our wine. We're gonna start our podcast, okay? And today it's gonna be about the American dream. Hopefully we can all hear. The average age of the residents here is 86, so obviously hearing is a little bit of a concern. Okay, everybody, ready to listen? Let's start today with... Stephen Dubner, host of Freakonomics, rings out over the speaker. Everyone settles in for a discussion about the elusive American dream. We are listening to, is the American dream dead? Because I thought that would be interesting because maybe they think about it. Yeah. It seemed like a good one. I think they can, we'll be able to hear it. I'm Lauren Oberen from WAMU and NPR. This is The Big Listen, the broadcast about podcasts. Each week on The Big Listen, we introduce you to podcasts that you might not have ever heard of, and we give you the inside scoop on shows you already love. And this week, we're hanging with some Eleanors and some Judys and some Lawrences, listening to shows with them. I'm old and they're new, (laughs) but I like it. (laughs) This podcast club of sorts is a weekly gathering here at Sunrise. And because it combines two of my favorite things, podcasts and senior citizens, we figured we'd check it out. The activity began a few months ago after their book club kind of sputtered. A lot of residents were asking, like, what happened to the book club? What happened to the book club? And like, what can I do? So I was just thinking, well, they're the generation that listened to the radio, sat or, I mean, I, I kind of pictured them sitting by the fire, <laughs> listening to the radio. I don't know why, you know, kind of like, um, President Roosevelt's kind of right, fireside right, exactly. chats kind of thing. So I presented it to them like, you know, these podcasts, they're short radio segments. Yeah. And then they got it. And the residents have gotten into it. Some of the podcasts they didn't like and some they have like, oh, I'd like to listen to more. Like we did a podcast around Chinese New Year about the Tong Wars, I believe. How did the Tong Wars eventually end? And does the legacy of these tongs affect Chinese Americans today? And the residents loved it. We'll hear more about the podcast predilections of these particular elders in a bit. Spoiler alert, it shows about sex. But first, we're going to head to America's tropical archipelago, Hawaii. I mean, not literally. We don't have the budget for that. Hawaii is a complicated place. It became the 50th state in the Union in 1959 against the protestations of many Native Hawaiians. For Jessica Terrell, the host of the podcast Offshore, Hawaii is a place of competing narratives. The first narrative is the one I was raised with. 
that Hawaii is the world's most successful melting pot, a post-racial paradise, if you will. I call this the 1950s narrative. It was really pushed in the years leading up to statehood. Hawaii should be a state, the argument went, because it was the shining example of America's best ideals, America's future. And then there's the other reality. The wildly different story about race in Hawaii, I call the 2009 version. That's the year the Southern Poverty Law Center, a progressive anti-racist organization, called out a prominent Native Hawaiian activist for basically promoting hate speech. In the 2009 version, Hawaii is a place seething with racial tension, and it's mostly directed at white people. Season one of Offshore looks to unpack those competing narratives by examining two different killings of Native men at the hands of whites, one in 1932 and the other in 2011. Jessica, welcome to The Big Listen. Thanks so much for having me on. All right, so first, why don't you give us a little snapshot of the first season of Offshore, which you titled A Killing in Waikiki. So the first season is about the death of two Native Hawaiian men, one in the early 1930s and the other in 2011. The 2011 story is about a sort of late-night fight that happens between an off-duty federal agent who's visiting Hawaii and a young Native Hawaiian man, and the federal agent ends up shooting and, and killing the Hawaiian man. And 1932, it's a story that involves the Navy and won't need to go into too much there. It's basically, it's a story about these two killings, and it's really about Hawaii history and race relations here and federal power and policing. For Native Hawaiians, this case will bring a whole history rushing back of colonization, oppression, racism, and a case, a specific case from 80 years ago, when a local man was murdered by whites who got away with it. People in Hawaii will ask a question that all of America is asking right now about cops and people of color and guns and death. It is a story that no one can stop talking about, the shooting of Trayvon Martin. Late this afternoon, the New York City medical examiner said Eric Garner did, in fact, die after police... Oh, my God, please don't tell me he's dead. Keep your hands where they are, please. Yes, I will, sir. I'll keep my hands where they are. A U.S. State Department special agent is accused of shooting and killing a Kailua man. Police arrested 27-year-old Christopher Didi on suspicion of murder, but he has not yet... Prior to listening to Offshore, I had virtually no understanding of anything that happened in Hawaii. I've never been there. I I know it as a place that people go on their honeymoon. And I found some of the demographic information that you share in the podcast to be so interesting. One is that there is no racial majority in Hawaii. Yeah, we are, I believe, the most diverse state in, in the United States. You are not you are not an, a native Hawaiian, as in you are not you were not born there, correct? I was not born there and I'm white, so I'm I'm Howley for sure. Mm-hmm. Right. And that is the native Hawaiian word for white people, which you become very familiar with in your reporting in offshore because it's a term that is used quite a bit. The first time someone called me Howley, I was interviewing people at a large homeless camp outside of Honolulu. I actually took it as kind of a compliment. I'd been spending almost every day in the camp for weeks, and so when one of the guys living there walked past me and said in a friendly tone, Hey Howley, where you been? I took it as a great sign that people were recognizing me, getting used to me hanging around. But I'd also been prepped by friends to expect to be called Howley in a much more negative way. And to be aware that there are parts of Hawaii where I would not be welcome because of the color of my skin. This experience, something people of color deal with across America every day, well, it's not something most white Americans are used to. All of this plays a big role in Christopher Didi's case. So in both of these killings that you report on, race and federal power play into it. And I wonder if you might talk a little bit about that, maybe just for sort of talk about the racial complexities of the state, because, you know, the United States is becoming ever more colorful, I would say, in in terms of its demography in that, you know, white people will not be in the majority forever. But Hawaii obviously is is already there. And I wonder what impacts race has sort of in day-to-day relations in the state. 
one of the biggest things that you hear coming here is that Native Hawaiians, local people, don't like white people, that white people are sort of discriminated against. That idea, I mean, it's something that played very much into the 1930s case and also was raised a lot in the um, 2011 case in terms of questioning whether or not this idea that locals didn't like white people was something that had been planted in this federal agent's mind and had sort of prepped him for a fight. And then also in the trials in a question of whether or not a white federal agent would be able to get a fair trial here. And so through a lot of the reporting, you know, one of the the really big themes that came up from people is that this idea that because a lot of people who move here for the first time who are white maybe haven't lived in a place where they're a minority before, um, it really stings and they really react to it. And it creates this sort of environment where people feel really, really put upon. Another thing that I learned by listening to Offshore was the extent of the military presence, the U.S. military presence in Hawaii and how they uh, are almost their own class of people. Maybe you can just sort of explain a little bit um, about that. Yeah. So a lot of military that we've talked to have talked about the sort of I think it used to be much more formal. Now it's just informal kind of on-base preparation for not being very welcomed, for Hawaiians and local people in Hawaii to really not like the federal government, to really not like outsiders, and to sort of be careful when they go to different parts of the island. I want to ask soldiers what they're being told about race relations and how locals feel about the military and if they're worried at all about how they're going to be received off base. Here's what Drake says about the conflicts between locals and military. There's some tensions. There's no question about that. But what we have told people and what we've found is if, it's like anywhere else. If, if you're nice to people, they're nice to you, you know? That may be the Army's official stance, but the informal word on base, it can be different. About how some locals don't like outsiders. About watching out for the word howling. And I'm not going to lie, the military, when I got here, they told us, like, oh, when you go out, be careful, like, the local people don't really like military. Don't say like that. You set up the problem. This is Sean Boyd, a.k.a. Doc Rock. He used to be an army medic. It's funny, they gave us this paper, and it's like, these places are blacklisted. We don't want soldiers to live in these places, right? And it was a couple streets in Wahiwa, and it was, uh, why not? But, like, for my rank at the time, that was about one of the only places I could afford. Doc moved to Waianae anyway. Loved it. As a side note here, I lived in Waianae for a few months on a reporting assignment. And despite its tough reputation, I didn't have any problems. So, you know, because Hawaii has this interesting racial dynamic and it has an interesting relationship with the federal government, I wonder if, you know... If you can see that there's there's anything that we as sort of like a country can learn from Hawaii. I mean, unfortunately, one of the lessons that seem to come out of it for us is that there isn't an immediate sort of kumbaya solution that happens. It's, it's not as if, at least from Hawaii's experience, the demographics in the United States are going to change and then all of a sudden everyone's going to just be okay and no longer have any sort of prejudice or discrimination against each other. And sort of the the warning of it from Hawaii is going back to, to white fragility. I mean, the sense of losing power, the reality is that uh, white people still hold a, an incredible amount of power in, in Hawaii. But the positive part of it from me, from from this reporting experience, was that there really is, I mean, they, they use the word aloha in Hawaii, and they, they take it to mean hello and goodbye in a lot of the tourism ads. But it has a much deeper meaning here, and it's a very important part of Hawaiian culture and the culture of the state of Hawaii now. And it really is about looking at people and treating them with the utmost amount of like respect and consideration and warmth and the, this idea of being able to approach each other and to approach these issues, to approach talking about race openly, to approach these sort of all of these challenges that we're facing in America and to talk about them with that sense of aloha, with this ability to not be angry, not be threatened, but to really listen to each other and have a great amount of compassion and love and respect for each other. 
ultimately, that that would be a great thing. I personally could also use some sun and maybe a drink served in a coconut. Jessica Terrell is the host of Offshore from Hawaii Civil Beat and PRX. To find out more about the show, which just began its second season, check out biglisten.org. Now, if I were to place a wager, I would bet that the residents of Sunrise Assisted Living Community would love Offshore. It's largely about history, which their cruise director, Alyssa Caracelli, says they love. So I was like, well, what topics do you want to listen to? And it was interesting. They wanted to talk about health, history, and sex. (laughs) Ooh, risque grandma. Have you tried any uh, love and relationship and sex podcasts? No, I haven't yet. I'm a little, you know, it's out in a public place where we have the podcast. We listen to it. I will let you know when we do, (laughs) if we do. While Caroselli hasn't tried any PG sex and relationship podcasts for the residents yet, she has experimented with some other shows. Though Caroselli says shows hosted by women are hard for the seniors. The higher pitched voices can be a challenge to hear. And if they don't like a show, they are not shy about letting Caroselli know. I love the idea of a bunch of elders just like rising up and being like, turn that podcast off. We don't want that. They have no... They will tell you what they do not like. They will tell you. Luckily for Garicelli, they seem to like the Freakonomics episode she picked for them on this particular day. Lisa? I don't think everything about the American dream as it is defined is what we need to win. I, I would rather be a happy person than have lots of money. We'll hear more from the folks at the Sunrise Assisted Living Community about the value of lifelong learning and podcasts. And we'll hear from America's sweetheart, Katie Couric, about how she actually hates being referred to as that. So don't call her that. I mean, secretly, I'm a raving and I think it's time people found out. But first, we're going to explore some untold stories from the Middle East, ones that don't involve conflict. I was always happy and excited when I talked to someone from somewhere else because I wanted to know more about them. And I wanted them to know more about me and where I come from. Because she didn't know, she called me Lebanese. (laughs) Lebanese wasn't even on the (laughs) subject. That's coming up in a sec. Don't go anywhere. This is NPR. Support for The Big Listen and the following message comes from The Black Tux. Dressing for a wedding or a fancy occasion is easy with blacktux.com. With sexy suits and tuxedos delivered to your door, The Black Tux gives you a new way to rent. Forget those bridal stores at the mall. The Black Tux's free home try-on lets you see the fit and feel the quality in your own home months before an event. To get free shipping both ways, plus free home try-on, visit theblacktux.com slash listen. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message also comes from Blue Apron. Blue Apron partners with sustainable farms, fisheries, and ranchers to bring you all the ingredients you need to create incredible home-cooked meals. Delicious. I love it. Ingredients come paired with an easy-to-follow recipe card delivered to your door weekly in a refrigerated box. How handy is that? Rediscover how fun cooking can be while enjoying specialty ingredients and exploring new flavors and cuisines. Get your first three Blue Apron meals free plus free shipping. What a bargain. By visiting blueapron.com big. Hi there, my name is Fergal McGrath. I'm an Irishman living in London. And the podcast I'd like to recommend is The British Are Coming. It's a comedy series that takes the, the Brexit referendum results to a situation where Ireland is taking in refugees from Britain because the economy there has collapsed. Your husband is a little Englander who tragically glorifies the past. Ho, 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 ho. Living with his parents aged 27. No wonder he voted Remain. He must be thrilled with her. I just really like it because as an Irish person living in the UK, it plays on Irish and British stereotypes 
and um, it's got all sorts of ludicrous ideas like um, plotting a revolution of the apathetic. That's people who forgot to vote in the referendum and they're unhappy with what, what has happened since. Yeah, that's one I recommend to you all over there in the States. Uh, the British are coming. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hey, pals, welcome back to The Big Listen. I'm Lauren Ober, and you should use your phone for its intended purpose and give us a ring. We want to hear what you're listening to. The number for the pod line is 202-885-POD1. Less texting, more calling. When you live in the U.S., the stories you hear about the Middle East tend to be a little one-note. It's either sectarian conflict or Islamic terrorism, but not a whole lot in between. Where are the narratives about love and success and childhood and all that stuff that makes a place and its people seem whole and complete? We're missing those. But the folks behind the podcast, Kerning Cultures, are trying to address that. Kerning Cultures uncovers everyday stories from countries like Lebanon, Jordan, and the United Arab Emirates. And they're in English, so those of us who don't speak Arabic can get a flavor for the fullness of the region. Listening to Kerning Cultures. Today we're talking about love and technology. Because, let's face it, we spend the majority of our time connected to a phone or a device. And so you can imagine there's a lot of stories to be told of what happens when we're connected. I'm Razan Alzayani. And I'm Hiba Fisher, and you're listening to Kerning Cultures. Hiba and Razan, welcome to The Big Listen. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us. Um, all right, so I want to start with a question that seems dumb, but I feel like it's important because you guys did bring it up in one of your recent episodes um, what is the Middle East? Because, and I say that, and I say it because, because you had a story from Afghanistan. Originally, I'm from Afghanistan and full of history, experience. And you noted in there that that is not the Middle East, but I think to a lot of everyday people, they were not aware of that. <laughs> I can't tell you how many conversations we've had about what, and everybody will have a different definition, but Razan, you, you explain. Yeah, I, I don't think that it's a silly question at all. So the Middle East could be defined as countries that are linked by language, which would be Arabic or let's say Farsi, right? Mm -hmm. But then you have outliers. So you'll have Turkey, for example. Is, is that considered the Middle East? You have uh, countries like Afghanistan, which is why we decided to talk about this in our recent podcast, is because Afghanistan isn't traditionally thought of as the Middle East. It's thought of as Asia. But the thing is, is that it's kind of been lumped in the region because of the news and politically it just kind of got lumped in with with everyone else. It's September 1980. We're in Afghanistan in an area called Jalalabad, about 100 kilometers from the border of Pakistan. There's a young 18-year-old man getting down from one of those big container trucks and he hops down from the truck and starts walking towards the border. And the only things he has on him are his pakul, a traditional woolen hat, and in his pocket, a piece of string from his kite. And this man knows that he is never coming back. He knew he was never coming back, but what he didn't know was the significance that this little piece of string would have on the rest of his life. I mean, our borders are quite... They've been fluid, or they had been historically fluid for a long time, and were people that are very, very mixed, mm -hmm. uh, I think ethnically and racially, religiously, culturally. So it's very difficult to define that. Right. I'm guessing that um, one of the goals, well, one, you want to tell the stories of the region, but two, I, you know, there are some misconceptions. There are Western misconceptions, and I feel like one of the things you do is sort of dispel those, not directly, but by telling the stories of, oh, everyday people live in this in this part of the world. I mean, what do you guys think? Like, what is the goal of telling these stories? Um, well, OK, well, I think, look, I think breaking news or news in general 
is very two-dimensional these days. It's very binary. It definitely delivers a message and it's very important to, to know what's happening in the world. However, we felt that very deeply that there was no reflection of ourselves in mainstream media because really there's no time and resources if you look at newsrooms to be able to get journalists um, digging deeper into stories and also they don't really tend to have a long shelf life, right? And I think whenever you hear Middle East, you immediately think in most mainstream media, politics, terrorism, war, and there's so much more. I mean, we have such a long history in our region and there's such richness and depth to the culture and the people and the places. And you don't see a reflection of that in much of the media surrounding the region. And so we we wanted to take back control of our narrative and we wanted to tell stories that actually represented the, the richness that we experience on a day-to-day life. Our lived experiences there have so much more colors than than what you see. And so uh, through through the stories that we tell in Kerning Cultures, we're, we're really trying to bring light to that. Mm-hmm. And that's why I really like the types of stories that, that you guys are doing. I mean, you're doing, you know, you're, you're, like you're doing love stories. You you talk about, you, I, I like that story you did about um, a Lebanese man and a Dutch woman meeting <laughs> online and the challenges of, of making their romance work. Maybe you guys could talk a little bit about that because I found that to be totally delightful. Um, well, that, that came from one of our producers. His name is Alex Atak. It's a really sweet story of, you know, he was 18 years old and just chatting on MSN Messenger back in 2006 during <laughs> the um, during the Lebanon-Israel war. When the, and the Wi-Fi was terrible at the time. It's still pretty slow in Lebanon, and it would cut all the time. And and he he found this girl online uh, who was living in a village outside of Rotterdam, um, and she didn't even really know where Lebanon was on the map. And yeah, we just started talking, and it's. It clicked in some I found it very interesting because he was from Lebanon. I didn't know anything about that country. It was just, it was it felt really natural. And There's a really cu- cute line where in the beginning she used to call him Lebanonese, not even Lebanese, um, <laughs> which is really sweet. And they were talking and talking and, you know, the, the conversations turned to hours and hours. And, and he said sometimes he would go up, they would be talking at two in the morning and he would go up on the rooftop of the house and unplug all the other Wi-Fi connections from different apartments so that he could have all the bandwidth for himself so the connection so wouldn't cut as they were talking. Um, and they fell in love and they ended up meeting. It's like everything we envisioned it it would be it was exactly the way how i thought and how we spoke it was missing the touch and the touch just completed it all so yeah everything fell into place we wouldn't leave each other's side i think we're like hugging or holding each other's hands like the (laughs) whole time in the car in the restaurants and we had wonderful seven days like that's crazy like whose parents would take them (laughs) across the world to meet some man who she had been chatting with online i mean it's bananas to me i just i i love that thank you for sharing that story (laughs) um i i like that um that we get a window into the sort of everyday of the region but you do also you, you looked into the travel ban executive order that obviously has, has since, you know, got installed in the courts. But tell me, I mean, that seemed like a little bit of a departure um, <laughs> from from your normal stories. But obviously, how could you ignore it? We, we, we felt, again, looking at all of the media, it was kind of it was talking about the policy itself and not about the impact of the policy on the people it was affecting in any way that, that, that we felt was truly representative. We want to ensure that we are not admitting into our country the very threats our soldiers are fighting overseas. Um, so I had to cancel my flights and my plans and everything. He said when he told his girlfriend, she was really upset. And then she was worried about like the future what our plans would be long term. Rightfully so. Obviously, I'm also concerned. Now, this froze all my plans on what would I do in my next steps because I was planning to settle down and like start a family and everything. But clearly, I cannot do that now because of all this instability. So I need to sort that out before I, I get into that uh, into that mode. Where is your girlfriend from? Uh, she's also uh, Syrian-Canadian, so she is not... Uh, she's not able to come visit me either. So so with me, like, not able to leave the country, it feels like uh, 
uh, like somebody's in the house arrest situation where uh, it's actually worse because uh, not only you can't leave, nobody can actually come and visit you, or at least the people you care about, they can't come and visit you. The flip side of that, looking at the the travel ban, was that you did a little episode on um, folks of Middle Eastern descent who were pro-Trump, which I thought was interesting and something that um, you wouldn't necessarily think about, especially now in light of, <laughs> you know, in light of this travel ban. Why did you want to look at, you know, Middle Eastern folks who supported Trump? How about do you want to go for that one? <laughs> um, I can. Since you worked on that story, mostly. So most liberal media, I think, just shut down Trump supporters. Like they're, you know, they're not looking at facts. Uh, they're not doing their research. They're just they're they're supporting this man. They don't know anything about, you know, all these things. And it was just kind of dismissed. You know, he's not racist. He's not racist. No, he's not racist. How do you know? How do you? Well, why do you think that? There were a lot of internal conversations about how we should do this and whether we should do it and all of this. And, and in the end, it's still it's still a piece that a lot of our listeners talk about, that they really appreciated that there was a um, it, that, that we took the time to sit down with with supporters of Trump who were very verbal and articulate, mm-hmm. try to treat their side of the story with openness and, and sincerity. Heba Fisher and Razan Alzayani are the hosts of Kerning Cultures. To learn more about their show, hit up biglisten.org. We're going to take another super quick break, but when we come back, we'll talk with Katie Couric about what it was like working her way up in the TV biz as a woman. I always make a joke that I got into the business when harass was two words instead of one. <laughs> God, it works every time. I've used that line so many times, Lauren. That's up next on The Big Listen. Stick around. This is NPR. All this month, we've been asking you to tell a friend about a podcast they will love. And you guys have done it. You've taken to social media and told your friends what to listen to. Such as, at Talia Lerner says... We need to flip the script in politics, taking inspiration from at NPR Invisibilia. Then there was another one, at Lauren Ober says, at Here Big Listen is the best broadcast about podcasts in the entire land. Oh my gosh, thank you. That's so kind of you. Just kidding, that's not my Twitter handle. Okay, so don't follow it because it's not me. Anyway, you got it. You know what to do now. So get out there. Tell your friends what podcast they should be listening to. Share it on social media. Call them on the telephone. I don't know. Send them a letter. Hashtag tripod. It'll be a mix of old and new, analog and digital. Get them out there listening to podcasts. Thank you for spreading the word. Hashtag T-R-Y-P-O-D. This is David Fellington from Huntington, West Virginia, and I am calling to recommend the Unorthodox podcast by Tablet Magazine. It is a very humorous podcast that looks uh, at a Jewish perspective of the news, uh, current events, and pop culture events of the prior week. Is anyone on this team Israeli? Stephanie, that is an offensive. It's Amari Amari Stoudemire is actually on the team. The incredible, the real incredible thing about this team is that you to qualify for one of these teams, you do not have to be a citizen of said country. You have to technically. It is entertaining for both Jews and non-Jews, and it is surprisingly uh, not safe for work to listen to. Hey, Jews! If you don't like bad words, maybe there's a nice other show you can go listen to. But don't stick around these parts because our language will fry your ears off. Thank you. Hey, pals, welcome back to The Big Listen. I'm Lauren Ober, and I'm going to slip you my number right now because I want you to call me and tell me what you're listening to. My number is 202-885-POD1. It's actually the pod line number. But anyway, call me for real. All right, friends, it's that time again. We call it Listen Up Time, and it's the part of the show where we grill some pretty cool folks about what podcasts they're into these days. And today, boy, oh boy, are you in for a treat, friends. Legendary broadcaster Katie Couric 
took time out of her busy schedule interviewing world leaders, rap moguls, and Hollywood starlets to chat with us about podcasts, specifically her own podcast, which is called Katie Couric. You know, I'm a big admirer of Alec Baldwin. You know, just I just realized, by the way, that you and I, we could have a show together. We could. You could be on in the morning, like at 7 in the morning. Let's do it. could be it. for like two hours from 7 to 9. I'm there. And you and I would be the stars. Yeah. We'd like talk to people and you could do some news and I could do like some interviews and stuff. I think that's a great idea. we'd be on in the morning idea. on the network. Yeah. Gee, Katie, what is it like to do a two-hour morning show from 7 to 9 every I day? I don't know. It's hard. All right. Thank you. Katie Couric, host of the eponymous podcast, Katie Couric. Welcome to the Big Listen. I know what an original name for my how, podcast. Hi, Lauren. How did you, how did you ever land on that? Title? You know, I thought on it and thought on it. <laughs> about three weeks later, no, you know, we 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 kind of played with some other names, but I think because my name is somewhat familiar, I think people thought it would be easier to find the podcast if I just called it Katie Couric. <laughs> See, I it's Kate, it's called Katie Couric, but then you have this sidekick, Brian guy. Like, why do you need that guy, you know? Hi, Brian. Hi, Katie. Because, well, first of all, I I, I, I heart Brian, Lauren. Okay, he's, okay. He's a, Brian Goldsmith. Yeah, he, Brian Goldsmith's a friend of mine. He's one of the smartest people I know. He's the kind of guy who got grounded in high school for sneaking out of his room to watch C-SPAN. Mm-hmm. Doesn't that tell you mm-hmm. everything you need to know about Brian Lauren? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, he's like a geek of the week. He'd be the he, guy you take with you um, to like bar trivia, but he couldn't do any of the pop culture questions. No, exactly, he do, exactly. He's yeah. kind of my, if I were George W. Bush, he would be my Carl Rove. <laughs> So I love having him around because he's so smart, and I like being around smart people. They make me feel smarter. Now, you your Twitter bio is a little menacing because while there are all these likes, you, <laughs> menacing. Like, you, like, you like burrata and you like bacon, but there's a dislike. It says, dislike, colon, you know who you are, which seems very un-Katie Couric to me. And oh, I'm like, you know, who I mean, does Katie not like? Is it Diane I, Sawyer? Lauren, listen to me. I, I have got to, you know, poke a hole in that America's sweetheart persona. At some point. Being called perky and chipper and spunky, like that has to be Gosh, annoying. Why do I feel like a, a squirrel in a Walt Disney right? movie all of a sudden? Or exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But like, but like those, I mean, in your Today Show years, I mean, those adjectives were thrown around all the time about you. And I'm, they were I mean, ubiquitous, that must have been annoying. I found those words, um, you know, slightly marginalizing because mm-hmm. I think, as uh, Susan Sarandon said, in in Bull Durham, you know, baby ducks are cute. And right. I think that 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 sort of um, precludes somebody from being intelligent or have, being substantive or having depth or being empathetic. So I, I found that uh, they're slightly sexist, too. I mean, they Bob are. Costas is never called perky or chipper, right? That's exactly right. I was just thinking, like, Al Roker was – nobody ever called him spunky. And he is, you know? he is much perkier than I am, believe you me. <laughs> so I – I feel like a, a little-known fact for our listeners is you started in radio in high school here in Washington, D.C. I did. You Gosh, worked with Carl Castle. I was Carl Castle's intern at WAVA All News Radio. Amazing. And then I worked at WASH in their news department. And then I worked at WMAL uh, as wow. as I actually they put me in sales. I think they thought I had a future in sales, Lauren, because of the aforementioned qualities. Yeah. And I remember uh, my dad said, "Why don't you you try to get a job at a radio station?" And I went through the phone book, and I remember just calling the stations and being like, "Hi." I'd like to come in for an informational interview and um, to no. possibly be an intern. And this was before internships were so <laughs> kind of widespread. And that's how I got all those jobs working at those radio stations. And so I, I know I want I thought about working for the Washington Post. I think I went there for an interview. I think I probably failed the writing test there. And then I decided, well, television, if my face isn't going to stop a clock, why not try television a little bit? And so I went and, and interviewed with ABC News in Washington. And that was my first job out of college as a desk assistant. Yeah. And uh, that's actually a very funny story. Please. So my mom drove me in, in our Buick uh, station wagon, this cream-colored <laughs> Buick station wagon, to the ABC uh, News uh, Washington Bureau. And I said, Mom, wait in the car. I'll be right back. <laughs> so I go to the security guard. And I'm like, hi, 
um, can I get a tour of the newsroom? Stop and of course it. they looked at me like I was on crack, which I don't think existed <laughs> back in 1979. But anyway, so I said, can I get a tour? And he's like, uh, no, we don't do that. And I said, okay, well, do you have a phone that I can use, uh, like a house phone? And he pointed to this phone that led up to the newsroom. So I, ca- I get on the phone. I'm like, hi, is Davey Newman there? He was executive producer of World News. So he got on the phone. He's like, Hello? He's kind of an old, uh, kind of a crotchety guy, and I go, "Hey, Davy, it's Katie Couric. Um, you don't know me, but my <laughs> sister Kiki went to high school with your cousin Steve no Eddie, and I used to play with your niece Julie Newman because she lived in my neighborhood. Can I come up and say hi?" Stop. And so he's like, "Oh, ah, oh, okay." He said, "How did you get up here?" And I explained the whole story, and he said, "Well, I admire your." Uh, I don't know, persistence or I admire your ingenuity. And he ended up taking my resume. It was at the bottom of the pile, and he put it on top because I had sent in my resume. And a couple weeks later, I got the job. So, Oh, my goodness. I mean, that's amazing. But I, I am guessing that, that back then, especially as a woman, in, in wanting to come up in that industry, you had to work a little harder maybe than your male compatriots. Well, I would say that's probably true. I always make a joke that I got into the business when harass was two words instead of one. <laughs> God, it works every time. I've used that line so many times, Lauren. I love it. It's a dad joke. I love it. <laughs> it's um, a dad joke. It's a you know that's a dad joke a little bit like. Wah, wah. Oh, wah, 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 wah. But anyway, um, so yeah, you know, I mean, I think, I think women do still have a, a challenging time sometimes in a predominantly male environment. There were some comments here and there, and I had a couple of other situations professionally, but I, you know, I just thought they were jerks and I didn't let them derail me. I just yeah. kind of kept, stayed focused on the, on on what I wanted to do and how yeah. I was going to get there. Um, well, so now I feel like with your podcast called Katie Couric, uh, it seems like things have kind of come full circle. You're coming back to the audio medium. Is it fun to do this kind of work without a camera in your face? Like, do you just roll up to the studio in sweatpants? Oh, my God. Are you kidding? It's so much fun. Uh, first of all, I mean, I think I'm sure you've experienced this. It's wonderful to be able to have a long form com- long form conversation in this era of, mm-hmm. you know, 140 character tweets and sound bites and very short interviews. Mm-hmm. There is something very liberating, I think, when people don't have to worry about what they look like. And I'm talking about the guests, and I feel that way too. It's just much more relaxed, much more casual, and as a result, much more intimate. Um, we knew that something was different about her, but we... But we didn't necessarily think no. about trans things. We no. thought maybe we had a boy who liked dresses. Right, right, right. But we knew that something was different, and I think we we picked up on that. We just didn't know exactly what we were dealing with at that point. Mm-hmm. JR, you know, one thing I didn't ask you about, I think when a parent has a child of a certain gender... You know, if you have a daughter, you have a son, you automatically, I think in your mind's eye, have certain expectations about how that child is going to grow up, the relationship you're going to have with that child. You had a son, Ronnie. You had a son, you thought. What was it like when you first had to come to terms with this? Because you all are so together and so supportive, but there had to be a moment when you were like, I wonder, you know, you've, you've had this very long, illustrious career. You've interviewed everyone, heads of state, celebrities. You've done breaking news. You ne- you've made these great news documentaries recently. And I wonder at what point did you realize, I am good. I am good at this. This is like, this is what I should be doing. Should I get a couch and like <laughs> one of those tissues for my hair in case it gets the couch dirty? <laughs> Um, uh, no, you know, I like, like everyone, I, I never feel, I'm sort of, there's a little Stuart Smalley in all of us. <laughs> I'm going to do a terrific show today, and I'm going to help people. I'm good enough. I'm good enough. I'm smart I'm enough. smart enough. Gosh darn I'm it. Doggone it. People, people like, like me. me. But, you know, I, I, I always feel like there's still so much to learn and understand mm-hmm. and, I, I still don't think I'm the greatest or anything. I mean, you're pretty great. I think 
Like, does has anyone ever said no to a Katie Couric interview? Oh my God, the list is long. <laughs> really? Who who is who has said no? Oh, a lot of people. I think I got a reputation. I think for for toughness, even though I think I'm extremely fair. After right. the Sarah Palin interview, I think some people were a little bit cautious about sitting down with me. And when it comes to establishing your worldview, I was curious, what newspapers and magazines did you regularly read before you were tapped for this to stay informed and to understand the I've world? read most of them, again, with a great appreciation for the press, for the media. But like what I mean, specifically? I'm curious that you... Um, all of them, any of them that um, have... have been in front of me over all these years. There are some people who um, sort of have the misimpression that I wanted to have a gotcha moment, which really isn't right. true. Who are there? Do you have a do you have like a little bucket list of of interviewees that you're just, you know, you got to get? Um, I mean, I, I have interviewed uh, uh, Prince Prince William and Prince Harry. It'd be fun to talk Ooh. to them again. Um, I'd like to interview President Trump if he mm. ever wanted to do that. And I'd like to interview many members of his cabinet. Um, you know, and I always love interviewing authors. I find that authors are the best interviews. Do you find that too, Lauren? Or who do you like interviewing? I mean, I like interviewing Katie Couric. <laughs> well, um, listen, before we let you go, I, I can't, I would be remiss if I did not ask you if you were listening to podcasts yourself. And if yes. so, can we get some recommendations? Well, I, I drove with my daughter uh, this weekend, and we were in the car for a couple of hours. So we listened to Missing Richard Simmons. I'm Dan Taberski. Three years ago to the day, Richard Simmons completely and inexplicably stopped being Richard Simmons. And I want to find out why. He may never talk to me. He may sue me or publicly excoriate me. But honestly, I'm good with all that except for the suing part. Why am I doing this? Because that year I got to know Richard made me even more fascinated than I was when I first proposed that documentary. I think he's important. So much more so than his goofball public persona lets on. And also, because a lot of people who know him and whose lives have been changed by him, they're worried or angry or full of grief. Some This guy that. named Dan Taberski does it. Have you listened mm-hmm. to it? Well, yes, but I also know that you had um, Dan on your I did. show. Mm-hmm. Hi, Dan. Welcome. Hi, nice to me. see you. Yeah. So I know I listened to the Axe Files because I love mm-hmm. David Axelrod. Mm-hmm. WTF. I like Mark Marin too. Pod Save America. I was on that podcast. You've been on all of those that you've just mentioned. Oh, I was on. I was on <laughs> Mark Marin and Pod Save America. This is me and Katie Couric. Katie, welcome to the show. Oh, and, and I was on the on Axe Dave. Files. Yes. Katie Couric, welcome. No wonder I like these podcasts so much, Lauren. Katie Couric is the host of the podcast, also named Katie Couric, from Earwolf. To find out more about her show or any of the shows she recommended, fire on up biglisten.org. It's got the details. Well, we've almost reached the end of this week's episode, but before we let you go... Chartography is our 60-second mapping of the iTunes charts. But we're not looking at number one or even number 100. We are looking at number 289, which honestly is a great number because I feel like there are 289 new podcasts coming out every darn day. Anyway, this week's 289 is a show from... Essence magazine called Yes Girl. It's supposed to be enthusiastic because there's um, an exclamation point at the end. Yes, yes girl. <laughs> the show is beamed from the Black Girl Magic headquarters, aka the Essence editorial offices. And um, in it, they interview lots of famous women of color. So, ladies, who do we have on the podcast this week? Rapper Remy Ma. Uh, actress Uzo Aduba from Orange is the New Black. Mm-hmm. The episode that I listened to, they interview Niecy Nash. Hi, ladies. From Reno 911 and one of my favorite shows on HBO, Getting On. I love the interview with Niecy Nash because she talks about how a family tragedy, her brother dying. My mother just said, I've had enough. I'm getting in the bed and I'm never getting back out. Propelled her into comedy. So Nisi took it upon herself 
to entertain her mother um, and sort of try to coax her out of her grief with her comedy. My mother goes from laying down in the bed to sitting up in the bed. Through that process, she realized, actually, I'm really funny. I heard a voice as audible as my own say, Nisi, it's a lot of people suffering. Don't be selfish. Go outside and spread this around. And I went outside and I said, I'm Nisi Nash and I'm funny. Um, and I just thought it was the most lovely story and something that I had never heard before. And um, yeah, it's it's smart black journalists interviewing smart black female celebrities. And uh, yes, girl. Want to listen to The Big Listen on the go while you're doing something else? Well, you can. Just go to iTunes or NPR One or any fine purveyor podcast and hit the subscribe button. Then we'll be slip sliding into your feed every week automatically. Also, leave us a review. Thank you. As always, we love us some listener feedback here. Please like us on Facebook and or follow us on Twitter. We're really fun. We're at Hear Big Listen. That's H-E-A-R Big Listen. So follow us. We're bigly. Ugh. If you want to send us love notes, our electronic mail address is biglisten at WAMU.org. The show today was produced, mixed, and edited by Jacob Fenston and Ponzi Rutch. I, Lauren Ober, was keeping my fingers crossed for spring to appear. David Schulman composed the theme music. Other music in the show came from Army Navy, the band, not the store. The Big Listen is the brainchild of boss lady Andy McDaniel and her boss man, J.J. Yore, and is produced by WAMU and distributed by NPR in Washington, D.C., capital of America. And now a few final thoughts from the folks at Sunrise Assisted Living Community on the value of podcasts for an older generation. Well, I think not, not only can you just maybe listen to it in a group, but this is a great activity for somebody that's more passive that might not like to be in groups. There's people that are loners. There's people that like small groups. And there's so many podcasts out there. I mean, I'm like amazed. There's a podcast out there for everyone. Not only that, but at Sunrise, podcasts help spark conversations so residents can keep up their verbal and listening skills. Plus, everyone loves a good story, right? With this group, they're so intellectually aware and they still want to learn. And they read the Washington Post, the New York Times. They still want to feel alive, be engaged, be challenged. Mm -hmm. And I think people do think, oh, they're sitting in a hallway in an assisted living community right. and nobody's, you know, and they have nothing to say. They have a lot to say. And we should probably listen to them. Till next time, keep listening, America. This is NPR. Hey there, Straggler. What are you still doing here? Well, since you're just moseying along, how's about you head on over to iTunes and drop us a review? Give us five stars. Give us no stars. Just give us some stars. Whatever. We would really appreciate hearing from you, and it helps other very attractive listeners, such as yourselves, find the show. It really does help. Thanks so much.